I am really into the blacklist on NBC. James, James Spader, voice of, voice, voice of Ultron, obligatory Marvel reference, is, is Raymond Reddington, number one on the, on the FBI's most wanted list and just a wonderful character. There are few things more compelling to me than a, than a, than a formidable villain on a, on a TV show. And Reddington toes, toes the line as some kind of anti-hero character. Also, his three-piece suits are just, mm, just <laughs> quality. A few weeks ago, when my, when, when my parents came to visit, I, I started my dad on the show, and he has already completed eight seasons of it. <laughs> All this is to say, when you're, when you're, when you're binge-watching on, on Netflix or just watching shows on TV, there's always a portion at the beginning of the episode, if you're mid-season especially, that people often just want to skip. It's the recap. If you're, if you're jumping into the middle of a season of a show, it's important to know where you've been. For example, if an episode begins with a main character tied up in a chair with a menacing person standing over them with implements of torture, you might want to know, hey, what circumstances led to this particular predicament? How might I avoid such circumstances? <laughs> Jumping into the middle of a story is hard without a recap. You can't know where you are if you don't know where you've been. This leads us into the Gospel of John. We're continuing our series through this Gospel, following our Savior through his earthly ministry. In a gospel that spends the most time of all four of our gospels in Jesus' actual words. And so most of the gospel of John is actually unique to John. Roughly 90% of it is only found in the gospel of John. But this miracle, this sign that we're looking at this morning, shows up in all four gospels. Why might that be the case? As a matter of fact, this is the only particular miracle of Christ beside the resurrection that shows up in every single gospel. Why might that be the case? This particular miracle reveals to us some things about our God and our Savior that no gospel writer wants us to miss. And so this miracle, it, it, it sums up what's, what's the title of today's sermon, which, I, which I've changed. So this, this is the other thing. Like when, when you have to give folks like a sermon title on Wednesday, and like you and the Holy Spirit haven't sat down and wrote the sermon yet, sometimes things change. So... Title of today's sermon, The God Who Feeds. Somebody say, The God Who Feeds. First order of business, the naming of this miracle. You may know this miracle as the feeding of the 5,000. That's probably the heading in, in your Bible. I'm going to argue that we not call it that. The text is actually clear. There are 5,000 men present. The women and children aren't counted. And so if we keep in mind that throughout the history of the church, Christianity has been known as and has actually been knocked by a lot of people as a religion for women, and the fact that to this day women still make up more of the Christian population broadly than men do, I think it's probably safe to say that if there were 5,000 men, there were probably thousands more women and children. And so that, makes, that even makes this miracle all the more amazing because Jesus could be feeding more than 10,000 people. So let's find out what happens. We're going to do three, three movements through this text. How the disciples saw Jesus, how we must see Jesus, and what this means for us. So the first question, what's, what's happening in this text? So a little while after, after the, in the previous chapter, we've seen his discourse with the religious leaders, where he gave an authoritative interpretation of the law, saying that it's all about him, and it's all about the preservation of life and justice, rather than just a justification of the status quo. And so he crosses the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd follows him. 
And we're talking about a squad, thousands of people. And when all the Gospels record this event, they tell us that Jesus looked at this crowd with compassion. Matthew tells us that he healed the sick in their midst. Mark tells us that he had been teaching them some things. And according to each of these three Gospels, Jesus' question to Philip is preceded by the disciples telling him, hey, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and get some, get some food and a place to stay because we're in the middle of nowhere. So here's the scene. Jesus is out in the middle of nowhere with a crowd of thousands of people who have been hanging out with him for, 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 for a long time. And so they're probably hungry. So the disciples think, hey, let's dismiss them for a lunch break. And Jesus' response is jarring in every single gospel. In, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he says to his disciples, you give them something to eat. In John, he asked the same thing to Philip. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? In Jesus' compassion for the crowd, he's concerned for their physical needs. But he's not just concerned. He's telling his disciples that it's their responsibility to meet that need rather than to let them fend for themselves. But his disciples can't handle this question. And they respond based on what they see, based on their own expectations. So Philip says in verse 7, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each of these people to have a bite. Andrew, another disciple, drew attention to a boy in their midst who had five little barley loaves and two little fish. And then he said, how far will these go among so many? Those are good questions, Philip and Andrew. Consider what could have been going through these, these disciples' minds. Philip could have been thinking, I mean, Jesus told us to give up everything and follow him. And now he's asking us to feed thousands of people? I mean, we need money to do that. I mean, who does he think we are? Does he think that we can just magically pull food out of thin air? Consider what Andrew might be thinking. I mean, we've got a few scraps that we can scrounge together, but what is that for thousands of people? Sometimes when, uh, when Desiree and I go out for dinner, she, she uh, often uh, overestimates the amount that she can eat, uh, even if she's hungry. And so, 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 the, so the phrase is, the phrase is that her, her, her eyes are bigger than her stomach. Some of us may have this same issue where our eyes are bigger than our stomach. But what if the issue with these disciples is not that their eyes are too big, but that their eyes are too small? The reason for this test was to reveal the disciples' expectations, whether they really knew the one who they followed. Because after asking these questions to test his disciples, a test that they fail, he told his disciples to tell the people to sit down. Now, I want us to take another look at these verses because the same thing happens here that happened with him turning the water into wine, where, like, you just walk through the miracle, and then, when, and then after you think about it, after the fact, you're like, wait, 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 just, what, just, what just happened? Chapter 6, verse 10 to 13. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they, when they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five little barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. We can, we can imagine some of Jesus' miracles. We can, we, we can imagine someone being healed of a disease, even maybe turning water to wine. But I think this miracle is one of the hardest to visualize. And the only comparable example I can think of is 
a woman's purse. Some of y'all know where, know, where, know where I'm going with this. So, so, so uh, uh, brothers, have you ever, t- have you ever turned, to your, turned to your wife for some random item and she's got it in her purse? Chapstick, got it. Tissues, got it. Bible, full-size Bible. How did this, what? Random, random throat lozenge from five years ago. Got that too. It's, it's like Jesus put these loaves and fish into a basket and then just goes to thousands of people and is just continuing to hand out loaves and fishes. And you're like, you just, I only saw you put, what, where is this coming from? And then to add to that, when they pick up the extra, they ended up with more than they started off with. Jesus is, is performing new creation right in front of these folks, making food where there was literally nothing. No one can do that. Well, almost no one can do that. And this is why the text culminates in verses 14 to 15. The crowd can clearly tell that something is different about Jesus. And and their impulse is to say that Jesus is the messianic prophet, predicted in Deuteronomy 18. The prophet that the Samaritans expected. The prophet that that the people of Israel expected. The prophet who would be like Moses. But Jesus also knew what else that would mean that they were going to try to make him king. And so he rolled out. But why might they think that? To those present, Jesus' actions revealed that he was a really important human being with amazing abilities. But the eyes that come to that conclusion are still far too small. And for us to get that, we've got to be familiar with the Old Testament. Because we can, we can see what those present may have understood. They may have thought that Jesus was to be a human ruler, a human ruler who would free them from their felt oppression. They thought that he was a prophet like Moses, ready to lead them out of Roman slavery, just like Moses had led the people of Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And, and, and this, there's, there's a, when, whenever, we, whenever we look at uh, messianic expectations, what people expect the Messiah to do, we always, we always kind of treat the, the political expectations as like not what Jesus came to do. No, it's just, he, he did come to do that. He's going to set us all free, but that's less than the full picture of what Christ's liberation looks like. And so I want us to think about in, in, in Mark, actually, when Mark outlines this story, when he, when he introduces the crowd, he says this in Mark 6.34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Mark is likely calling back to the prophets, particularly Ezekiel 34, where God ordered Ezekiel to prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. And I want to listen to this prophecy. And as you listen to this prophecy, think about about Jesus feeding the 5,000 in this grassy field that they're sitting in. Ezekiel 34, 4 to 6. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick. Or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strayed or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. But the Lord continues in verse 11. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep 
and look after them. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak, but the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will shepherd the flock with justice. Did you hear that? Did you hear why Jesus told the crowd to sit down? Did you hear why John draws attention to the fact that there was plenty of grass in that place? Did you hear why we're also told in the beginning of this passage that Jesus is sitting down on a mountainside? But wait, there's more. Numbers 11 is a wild chapter in the, in the scriptures. So in Numbers 11, we're not going put to put, put it up on the screen. It's, it's, it's long, but it's amazing. In, in Numbers 11, the people are complaining to God about the manna that the Lord has miraculously provided for them from heaven. They said they want meat. And I understand as a carnivore, love meat. Like, I, like manna for a long, a long time, I might, I mean, I might grumble, but still like, miraculously, manna from heaven, but we're grumbling. Okay, so Moses, Moses goes and complains to the Lord, and he says, why did you put me with these grumbling people? They keep whining, we want meat, we want meat. And, and then Moses says, if you love me, Lord, just go ahead and kill me. I can't handle these folks, just, just, just kill me now. And so, and so the Lord, the Lord then tells Moses, okay, I'm gonna do two things. First, I'm going, to take some of the, I'm going to take some of the power of the Holy Spirit from you, and I'm, going to, and I'm going to distribute it to the elders. Then I'm going to give the people meat for a month. All the people, meat for a month. And Moses' first response is, here I am among 600,000 men on foot, and you say I will give them meat to eat for a whole month? Would they have enough if flocks and herds were slaughtered for them? Would they have enough if all the fish in the sea were caught for them? And the Lord responds, Moses, you better take all that bass out your voice. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not what he says. What he, what he really says is, is the Lord's arm too short? Is the Lord's arm too short? Do you know who you're talking to? And Jesus, in feeding the multitude, is answering this question. There's a word for what's going on here. I want you all to say it. It's called recapitulation. Somebody say recapitulation. That's what the word recap is short for. And, 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 and what it means is it's a, it's a summing up. And when we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, We're coming into contact with the one who sums up the whole of Scripture in his person and in his activity. When we saw him last week tearing the religious leaders a new one, we saw the divine lawgiver schooling law professors. When we saw him cleanse the temple in John 2, we saw the temple of flesh cleanse a temple of stone. When when he spoke to Nicodemus, we saw the word which birthed creation in Genesis 1 call for a new creation. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 10 that the patriarchs were all under the cloud and they passed through the sea and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and they all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock 
was Christ. That spiritual rock, that bearer of spiritual drink and spiritual food, offered living water to the woman at the well. And he offered bread and fish to the multitude of thousands on that grassy mountainside. Jesus, in this miracle, was not pointing to the God who feeds. He wasn't representing the God who feeds. He wasn't copying the God who feeds. Jesus Christ is the God who feeds. The shepherd of the sheep. The one who leads his sheep to good pastures to grassy fields, the one who tends his sheep and has them lie down, the one who searches for the lost and he brings back the strays. Jesus binds up the injured with a word. Jesus strengthens the weak with a word. Jesus rebukes the haughty and the prideful. Jesus shepherds the flock with justice. It's Advent, y'all, and we, we need to know who this Jesus is that we're waiting for. And if we're going to invite people to come to know this Jesus, we, we've got to know who he is. And in summary, he's the divine recapitulation. He's the summing up of everything. The Lord split the power of the, of the Spirit among the elders in, in Israel in, in Numbers 11. They, they prophesied once, but they couldn't do it again. Jesus possessed the Spirit without measure because he is God. And this miracle, most important thing I think to take from this miracle is that the God of the universe cares about whether his people eat. And he feeds them, and he feeds them out of his storehouse, not out of their imagination. The Lord nourishes his people out of his own capacity, not out of whatever we think that he can do. And so this is a, it's a, it's a gentle rebuke of his disciples because their first question to the Lord when he asked them a question is, how are we going to do this? As opposed to turning back to him and saying, how are you going to do this? If, if you've been hanging around with somebody who turns water into wine, who claims to be the subject of the scriptures, who heals sick people with a touch and a word, and this person asks you to solve an impossible problem, I think you're entirely within your rights to say, how are you going to do this? <laughs> so then what does that mean for us? Jesus doesn't walk around with us. He's presumably not multiplying fish and loaves in our midst or so we might think. When Jesus Christ died for your sins, was raised from the dead, and ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within all those who repent and believe the gospel. And so this means that if you've repented and placed your faith in Christ for your salvation, you have been mystically united to Christ. I, use that, I try to use that language every week because this is what I believe the gospel is, that, 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 that God has mystically united you to himself. Now, those words can sound out there. Here's what that means. It means that the God who created the universe and healed with a word and a touch dwells in you and with you. It means that the God who fed his people in the wilderness and the God who fed his disciples on the mountainside feeds his people now. And it means that those who are united to Christ do the same kinds of things that their Lord does. And so if you want the basis for Christian hospitality, this is it. We serve one another in hospitality because it shows that we have the same concern for one another that the Lord has for us. Caring for one another's physical needs is actually one of the most powerful things that we can do for one another. So if you want one solid takeaway from this text, one thing that you can hold on to and commit to this week and perhaps for the rest of your life, I would say this, feed somebody. If you're united to the God who feeds, then we've got to be known as the people who feed. 
we often have a number of excuses why we don't uh, reach out to others uh, in hospitality. Maybe you think your, your apartment's too small. Maybe, maybe we don't think we have enough decorations up. Maybe we don't have time. Maybe we don't have energy. Maybe we're self-conscious about the fact that our kids are out of control uh, or some other household quirk. Now, some of these are legit. Sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in seasons where we have to receive and where we're unable to give. I get it. But that season rarely lasts our entire lives. Also, the times when I have felt most loved, the times when I have felt most welcomed and at ease, have been the times when you all have invited me, not just into your, not, not just into your homes, but into your families, to see the, the toys on the floor, to see the occasional dinnertime tantrum. It happens, and it makes me feel so loved to see it. Because there's no pretense. Hos- hos- hospitality is service through sharing, and you can only share what you've got, what you've received. And it doesn't have to be extravagant. Because one of the things that this text reminds us is that however little we may have, it's the Lord who does the multiplication, not us. So even the offering of a meal, which may seem meager in your eyes, can multiply into a flowering relationship with your, with your neighbor and profound joy for you. I've said this, I've said this before, but I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with beef. Have been since the womb. My, mo- my mom had cravings for it when she was pregnant with me, and they've been passed f- in full force to me. Burgers bring me joy. Steak brings me joy. Brisket brings me joy. Sorry, but also not sorry to the vegetarians and vegans that may be here. I'm, I'm, I'm praying for you. But few of, those, few of those joys, few of those joys compare to when I, when, 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 I, when I have the opportunity to make my now famous to my family burgers for family and friends. I have to be the last one who eats at those times because of how fun it is to see that joy wash over their faces as they bite into that juicy goodness. Meals are an easy way to create context for camaraderie and a frame for friendship. There are conversations that you can have with folks over a meal that you can't just have over boba. However small your contribution may be, the Lord can use it to brighten someone's day and bring them closer to him. But for some of us, the reason why we don't lean into hospitality isn't because we think we have too little. Some of us have too much. Here's an example. There's a book that we have at home that I read to Jasmine sometimes that also really annoys me. It's called Too Many Carrots by Katie Hudson. In this book, you have a rabbit who's in a, who's in a predicament. He's a hoarder. Now, this is not, it's not said in the book that he's a hoarder, but you can very easily tell that he's a hoarder. And if you've you ever watched the TV show Hoarders, you know it's a serious problem. This rabbit hoards carrots. He loves carrots, and his house is full of them. But the issue is that he, he has so many carrots, he doesn't have anywhere to sleep. And so what does he do? He goes to his friends to look for somewhere to sleep. Now, when he gets to this point, and this is, and this is the point that like, drives the plot forward, and it bothers me so much, my first thought is, bro, get rid of some carrots so that you can sleep. But no, instead he goes to his friends and he brings his carrots with him. Each of his friends are very, they're very hospitable, but they're also super enabling. And so, and so, whether, it's, so whether it's tortoise or bird or squirrel or beaver, they all invite Rabbit in, but Rabbit brings all of his carrots. 
And, and, and every time, every time Rabbit goes into their, he destroys their homes. When he brings all these carrots in, he destroys each and every one of their homes. One of the most frustrating pages in this book. I'm sorry. This, this, I, I, as I was preparing the sermon, I was just like, I got to talk about this book because this, this book is insane. Okay. The most frustrating page in this book to me is when Rabbit has already destroyed the homes of Tortoise, Bird, and Squirrel. And he takes, and, and, and like after, he's, after he destroys their houses, he like takes them with him because he's like, we all got to find somewhere to live together. And so, and so they all go to see Beaver. And so he takes them and all of his carrots to Beaver's Dam and he collapses the dam and Beaver cries, oh no, my house. And Rabbit cries, oh no, my carrots. Some of us, some of us have our carrots. Some of us have things that we hold on to that keep us from serving others. I would hope that few of us are hoarders, but there are other things that take up so much of our mental and emotional energy that they keep us from loving our neighbors. And so I would encourage each of us to do some self-examination to find out what your carrots are. At the end of this book, Rabbit ends up inviting tortoise, beaver, squirrel, and bird, because he's destroyed their houses, back to his house and sharing because as the book says, carrots weren't for collecting, they were for sharing. What's missing, however, is that rabbit needs to repent in sackcloth and ashes for destroying the homes of his friends because of his selfishness. Sometimes, sometimes our carrots are harmless. Sometimes they're just things to share instead of keep to ourselves. Sometimes, however, our carrots need to be repented of. Sometimes it's our selfishness. Sometimes it's, our need, it's, it, it, it's just our, our need to have everything right all the time that paralyzes us and keeps us from simple acts of love and service. In those situations, this is what we must remember. We must remember that the God that we serve is not a God of scarcity, but a God of abundance. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us not because they needed us, not because they were like, oh my goodness, what's, what's missing from this eternal relationship of love and fellowship? Human beings who can sin. Yeah, that's what's missing. They create us out of an overflow of their love for one another and as an invitation into that love. And so as those who have been united to Christ, we offer others that same invitation. And as people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we have the power and resources to actually pour into others. And so I assure you, the more that you lean into hospitality, the more the Lord will actually use those opportunities to feed you. John 6, along with each of the other Gospels, describes the feeding of the multitude because it's often the case that we need physical narratives of, of liberation to drive deep into our hearts the beauty of the spiritual liberation that Christ has wrought for us. He freed Israel from slavery to claim a people for himself. He was born, lived a perfect life according to the law, healed, fed folks, died, and was raised and ascended for that same reason, to claim a people for himself. And he's coming again to complete that work. You may have heard the phrase that hurt people hurt people. Christ's liberation reveals that free people free people. 
And hospitality is one of the most profound ways that we can invite people into our lives and one of the ways that we can show others the God who feeds. And so my encouragement to you all is to go out this week, this month, this year, this lifetime and feed folks. Whether your capacity is to feed a single father or mother and their family, or if you have the capacity to build a food bank or finance a grocery store in a food desert. We can feed because we have been fed, dear brother and dear sister. Let us show the world not the scarcity and smallness of our own imaginations, but the abundance and the magnanimity of the God who loves us and died for us. And then we can see the Lord multiply our little, our little loaves and fish in the lives of the people around us. Let's pray.